You're listening to The Good Fight, where campus meets Christ. Welcome back to another episode. I, uh, I've realized recently that it's very hard to come up with something original to say every single week. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult. Like I'm, I'm really stretching the bounds of my creativity here. Or you can just come up with something set but unique and say that every time. I feel as inauthentic. Mm, that's how a lot of podcasts go. Wow. Or it could just be a surprise. People will never know whether they get like the normal welcome or whether they get something fun and fancy. Mm. I think mm. this is original in itself when you say that. That's the point. <laughs> it's like you got to break through the fourth wall sometimes. Yeah. So this is why you need to learn accents. I feel like that would that would be weird. That would be Hello and welcome back. Actually, I can't even try. <laughs> I was going to try to. I feel like I feel like we've introduced ourselves enough times. Or have we? Well, our members change. We have someone who has not been with us in a little while here. That's true. Yeah. Hello. I'm back. You know it's Faven. Welcome Faven. Thank you guys. It's good to have you again. Gabrielle did not want to join us this week because she did not do the reading. So sad. She might be uh, back next week. A true travesty. Yeah. Such well, a good book. Maybe. Yeah. For the for the book at least. It is a travesty. But it was nice to have her. And it will be nice to have her again. Yeah. But Tina, do you wanna give us a rundown? What did we read this week? Okay, so this week we were supposed to read chapters eight to ten. And chapter why, eight why did you say supposed to? You We we are as in listeners, okay. you were supposed okay. to read chapters eight to ten. And I don't know if they read chapters eight to ten or more or less. Anyway, chapter eight is called The Fight at the Lamp Post. Uh, there's a fight at the lamppost and the witch is fighting everyone else. And she hits the police violently and also breaks off an entire lamppost or part of a lamppost. She's strong enough to break through iron. And Diggory at this moment grabs the witch and uses the ring to go back to the woods with all the pawns. But she realize, but he realizes that he's not only with the witch. Um, Diggory is there, Polly is there, Uncle Andrew, the cabbie, and Shrubbery, the horse, all end up in the woods with the pawns. And Shrubbery decides to take a drink out of a random pond, so all of them end up in a random world. And this world is called nothing, according to the witch. But at the same time, while they're quabbling and fighting over what to do, they hear a song, and they see a lion, and things start coming alive. And the witch tries to throw the post at the lion, but the lion doesn't care, and the post begins to grow into a bigger post. And the lion keeps seeing, and the witch runs, and suddenly the lion makes beasts talk. And they're talking beast, and a jack doll makes the first stroke. And the lion says, the lion's also called Aslan, by the way, this world is only five hours old, but there's already an evil in our world. Mm. And Diggory tries to ride Strawberry to find Aslan. You know, one of the houses I grew up in actually had, we had a, la- a lamp post in our front yard. Ooh. And I just remembered that as you were talking about the lamp post, Tina. And I feel like it was such a missed opportunity. Like think think of all the imaginative fun times we could have had with the lamp post. Yeah, I think the lamp post is an important detail throughout these chapters. It's it a is. motif. It is. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that, but it doesn't show up right away quite yet. Actually, the the first question I had was kind of literary. The witch has this line. She says, "Scum, you shall pay dearly for this when I have conquered your world." 
Not one stone of your city will be left. I will make it as Karn, as Felinda, as Sorlois, as Bramandin. What what are those four places? Like we've only been introduced to Karn. Are the other three cities? Are they other worlds? Like what are we talking about? I feel like either. Yeah, I was gonna say either because isn't Karn is technically a city. We've just named the world after it. Yeah, all we so, know at least is that it's a city, but it does seem to be implied that it's a world. Well, it's the city of Karn, isn't it? Yeah. And so we call the world Karn. But it is concerning just how far her evils have go- have gone. She's been to four different worlds and conquered all of them. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what's at stake here, right? If it's just four cities, I feel like the game is kind of small, right? Not much skin in the game. But if those are four different worlds, like we're talking about a big problem, especially when you look at Earth. Yeah, evil that is far greater. I was also curious. We um we dive back into the the wood between worlds, and it's brief. It's brief this time, but we have uh now we have Uncle Andrew, and uh Strawberry the horse, and I wonder if if we could maybe analyze their two reactions to the wood between the worlds so uh we have so we've we've already talked about the witch before and her reaction seems to be the same you know she turns pale she feels sick and then uh lewis writes uncle andrew was shivering but strawberry the horse shook his head gave a cheerful whinny and seemed to feel better he became quiet for the first time since diggory had seen him his ears which had been laid fat flat back on his skull came into their proper position, and the fire went out of his eyes. So Uncle Andrew is shivering, and the the horse seems to have a calmed effect. I think we can return to last episode, or some previous episode, where we were talking about the witch's reaction, to which uh, right now we can still see that she feels deadly sick. And I think we discussed that people who go into this wood, if they have evil intentions, then the wood is trying to equalize out the power and i think uncle andrew because he also likewise has evil selfish intentions when it comes to magic so we see that he is also negatively affected by the wood whereas strawberry i feel like on earth strawberry has been abused as a horse he's Mm -hmm. been through a lot of suffering everyone whips him so right now he strawberry has finally arrived at a place where he can feel peace and like humans no longer have power over him but why is that like what is it about the wood that gives him that sense my interpretation is that the wood is the middle ground for any living being so they're all equal in this intermediate intermediate this liminal space i feel like it almost goes beyond that it seems like evil doesn't have any power um, and maybe that is kind of what you're saying, but it seems like good does have power there because Diggory and Polly were able to overpower the witch, which I think is saying something given how great she's described as, um, that they would have more power than her. Yeah, we can see that the fire went out of his eyes because Strawberry was feeling a lot of anger, but going into the wood, he no longer feels that he just feels peace as we saw in chapter in one of the early chapters yeah it's um when they enter that world um 
you know, like everything has a life now. Everything's growing. There's this feeling of regeneration. Um, even Uncle Andrew says that, like, I feel like, you know, a 60-year-old man like me, like I wouldn't even grow a day if I stayed here for a long time. And so there's this feeling of being replenished and regenerated. And it is something that the even the animals can feel and thrive in. Not quite there yet, Faven. No. No, we're not. We're not. We're not quite oh, to the well to Narnia, but we'll definitely. Well, we'll definitely get to that. Maybe cut this out and put it in the <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if if we when we get there, we should definitely compare that sense of new growth, um, and and compare that to the right because that feels like a a qualitatively different goodness from the goodness that we see in mm-hmm. the the wood between the worlds. Yeah. So maybe maybe when we get there, we should talk about that. Um, but before we have this kind of regenerative Narnia, we have um, nothing. And I just wondered, like, what do, what do we picture this nothing as? Wait, right before we get to the nothing, oh, I have sure. a question. Why did Polly and Diggory put the green rings back on when they still had the witch holding on? If the point was to get the witch to the forest... And then they seem to intentionally be jumping. They think they're jumping into the pond they came from, right? Because um, Diggory says, what does Diggory say? Diggory specifically says, like, that's a bit of luck, as if he knew that he wasn't in the right world. Or was he intending to go into the wrong world and leave them there? If so, why would he not just take the witch? That's a good question. I was just confused. I definitely think... um so Polly gives the order uh, greens and she does this because she sees strawberry drinking at another pool. So I think Polly's intentionally trying to take everyone out of the wood. And I would presume it's to get the witch as far away from earth as possible mm-hmm. because that's the main danger to her. So they're, and I, she might've been betting on that they're back in Karn so they can leave the witch where they found her. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. There's definitely intentionality. And so I, I think I agree with you, Tina, that, that it, it is an attempt at complete separation. Although I think that's interesting because they've seen how weak she is in the wood. Um, whereas, you know, if they take her to a new world and then leave her there, I mean, they've just like condemned that world to the same yeah. destruction that has happened in other worlds. So maybe we could criticize that decision a little bit at least i would Mm, but we did see that the witch does regain her power so like she she can adjust somewhat somewhat it i mean that that passage is still up for interpretation Mm. right because when she comes back she's weakened again so there's still a question of like if she is recovering how much can she recover and does she even recover I would say she doesn't recover, but that's my interpretation. I don't know. I just think that the children's priority is to protect their home. And um, you're arguing that they're not considering the other worlds, but that's the other worlds are not on their priority list. Yeah, as as evidenced by their decision. Mm-hmm. Does that satisfy your question, Grace Luda? I think so. I don't think it answers it, but it satisfies it at least okay. for now. Okay. So nothing. And and Tina, I was I was very interested how you introduced this in the the summer at the beginning, because you said she 
she says it's called nothing. Um, and I think that was actually one of the questions I had was if it's nothing, right? If it's uh, some sort of uh, declaration that there is nothing here, right? There exists nothing. Well, that clearly can't be the case because they're standing on something and they're breathing. Uh, but I think you're right that it is a sort of naming, right? That this place is called nothing, that there is no something for it to be named after. And yeah, a supporting argument is that it's in caps. The N is capitalized. Right. So the question is, what is nothing like? Yeah, what's it like? Like if we were to imagine ourselves there, what would we feel like? What would the things seem like? And then outside of imagining ourselves there, like what in our life or in our theology is this a picture of? Well, to begin, those are two very big questions. They are. Mostly the latter. Um, or like important, I guess, questions, important questions. Um, I think for the first one, I think last week I was talking about those like saltwater pod bath things where you like go in like float in salt water and apparently they're super relaxing because it's like really dark in there and you're just floating I feel like that's probably a good representation of, of nothing except for the fact that they do say they are standing on something but it's nothing like under their feet there was a cool flat something which might have been earth and was certainly not grass or wood so that's interesting um yeah, what, are, what do you guys think that, that nothing would be like? Have you ever, like, walked through a really dark room, like, pitch black room? And yes. you, you, like, have a sense that there's things out there, but you have no idea what could be out there. Um, and, like, I was struck by the line about the air. It says the, the air was cold and dry and there was no wind. Like... That's the part that I can't imagine, right? It's like the lack of movement in the air. Because I feel like the only time you notice that the air is moving or not moving is when it is moving. So for you to not, for you to notice that there is no movement is, I think, a real testament that there's like something different about the place. But yeah, I always, I picture like a pitch black room and just like, not wanting to move anywhere because you could, you know, sprain your shin on something and then fall. I can't even conceptualize in nothingness. So difficult for me. Because even with the pitch dark room, that's a that's a good one. But for me, that's still something, you know? You're in a pitch black. What is nothingness? Yeah, so I think that's something physicists are trying or philosophers are also trying to work out because the theory of the Big Bang, just before that, supposed to be it's supposed to be nothing. There's not even time. So that's kind of what I imagine. Like nothing is a state where there's absolutely no movement, absolute zero, no time, no nothing. But which I think is a little contradictory in the text, right? Because they can breathe. Yeah. It's only just cold. It's not freezing. And they're standing on something. But that might also be because almost at the same time, Aslan is trying to create this world. Mm. So it's already transitioning from nothing to something if it was pure nothing oh, they good, might be yeah. poof they might be gone right they couldn't be there if there was nothing yeah so you're saying it's in this moment of transition right mm -hmm. i think it's interesting that the first thing the witch then said actually wait no 
Tim, you asked the second question. Yeah, the second question is theologically or like in our reality, what what do we what do we draw from this picture of nothing? Creation. Ooh. What about what about creation? You know, like let's dig. <laughs> Tim's like, come on. I think of spiritual bankruptcy. Absolutely nothingness. Can you draw that out a little bit more? Yeah. Um so I think of life devoid of the spirit of God when you're you know, like when people describe different kinds of mental illness where they're you know, they're like, I feel absolutely like I feel so hollow and empty and dark and I feel like I'm in a pit of hell and for me it's like uh, it's not a physical reality but it's still a reality nonetheless um, that someone is inhabiting. And so I can imagine nothingness in that sense where there's you're feeling literally nothing even though you're in a space where there are a lot of things, but to you, you're mentally in a different place. Um, well, you know, and I think like, especially I think of stories where people encounter Jesus and they're like, they're restored and like, they don't feel nothingness or emptiness or hollowness. Now they, they feel full and they feel like their whole being has just, their humanity has just been restored to them. So I think of nothingness, I guess, in that kind of sense, not in a physical. Yeah, I think that's a good, like a, a good connection to reality. Like how do we experience this even now when there is something? Mm. But Grace Lita, you said creation. Do you want to? Yeah, by that I mean like the creation of of our world. I think this very much image like parallels it. Like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Um we see here Aslan and we see the music. We're here the music. Read the mu- about them hearing the music. I don't know. Um that is what I mean, can I jump ahead a little bit? Yeah. That's okay. the next question. <laughs> like what not Perfect. necessarily what is the music, but like why choose the music oh why choose why choose the music and whatever you want to talk about first later. okay well on then you have this the when you, they first start hearing the music the way it's described is in the darkness something was happening at last a voice had begun to sing it was very far away and degree found it hard to decide from which direction it was coming sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth itself there were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. Um, and, yeah, that seems like a good reflection of of creation. Um, of something coming out of nothing. And it coming out of nothing through, through the word. Um, yeah, that's just... I think I think it's really I think it's a really beautiful choice. I think especially this choice of incomprehensible beauty um, in the in the choice of music. Um, I think we maybe talked a little bit this after actually after we were recording last week. We talked a little bit about this idea of um, why choosing music because Tolkien also chose music for yes. or song for the creation of the world. Yeah, in in Tolkien's Silmarillion, uh, his creation of the the middle earth world is is very similar to this that we get here where you have this music and i think part of that is because the spirit of god it's like the breath of god right and Mm -hmm. 
um, in the beginning was the word, right? The word being like very much paralleling that, that breath of God. Um, and so I think for, because of that, there's a very, like, I, I think cause that word breath connection, this music that seems to almost be coming like breathing is right. Or like, as that kind of coming from the mouth, um, seems to image that or like parallel that be an image of that. Sorry. But why can't it just be talking, giving a speech? Why does it have to be singing? That's a good question. Well, if I were to pose a hypothesis to you, my first thoughts is because if it were speech, it would have to be something that man could understand. Um, to a certain extent, like I think, I think, like in this, in the book, right, like in the way that a book would describe it, he could choose to have done like words that no one understood, but it's still this very human communication-based thing, and there seems to be something inherently more beautiful about music because theoretically it is a speech right like theoretically it is it could be a language it could be like it could have a deep meaning behind it which in this case i think we see it that it does it has the meaning of creation behind it um but at the same time it's it's distinctly inhuman while also being something humans can understand and i think that makes it very unique versus like a speech why does it have to be something man doesn't understand? Because I think it's because, I mean, it comes like it comes from God. Like in this case, let's say it was something that man could understand, right? One, I think that, I mean, I think God is so much greater than we can comprehend. And I think there's an element of this being portrayed. But the other hand is like, from a very practical purpose, if we will, like C.S. Lewis, there's no way he's going to write a speech that would have been spoken by God um, in this fictional book. Like I just, I doubt it. Like he um that's a huge undertaking to be like this is the word like this is what god spoke for creation to exist couldn't he say this is what the lion said because oh no no no. like he could but like what would you even say what would you say that is great enough or not great enough like or like the great enough for god to have spoken for it to have created the world like there's something so distinctly uncomprehensible about that that there is a god who is so powerful that he can speak something from nothing. It's like, I I think it'd be a very hard challenge to be like, and these things that he spoke could even be put, these like, into the human language. Yeah. Well, he could have just stuck with the biblical way, which is just to use the jussive, which is let, let there, there be, be light. Right. So I, I don't know. Like, there is definitely a sense of, there is an alternative that seems to be more scriptural, right? Mm. So there's a very clearly, definitely some reason why he chooses to use song and music instead. And I think I think you're you're really touching on the right things, Grace Alita. Like on the one hand, it seems there's a literary reason, right, that you can describe it better without saying what it means, right? Like you can describe how music feels and the react you know, the response, the reaction it evokes without actually knowing what the meaning of the words are, Mm -hmm. right? There is a, like a representative value to music outside of the meaning of the words. And then you also have the aspect of beauty, right? And that's part of like why you can describe it is because there is a quality to it um, beyond just the meaning, 
And I think it's not that we don't have that with words themselves, but it's like when you're imagining God speaking, uh, you know, it's not just our pithy little voices, you know, it's like this richness to it that you, you can't describe in just saying words and describing how speech is conveyed. But with music, right, it's like there's a, a layer to it beyond the communicative. Yeah, I agree. And I do like Grace Alita's point about how humans cannot understand it because I think that if C.S. Lewis chose to use words and if it were just a speech, then it seems to suggest that this is something that man could have done. This is something that they, if they also said these words, then they could have had the power of creation. But I think with music, it means that this power transcends humans and it transcends a human logic, the human logic within language. And it's something that um, not only humans, but every living being can feel. Everyone can appreciate the beauty of this music. And we do see this with Strawberry. Like Diggory thinks it's really beautiful. We just read that Strawberry also seems to be enjoying the music. So if it were in language, then Strawberry wouldn't get it. And the other uh, animals and beasts were introduced to later would probably not have understood the beauty of creation. That's good. I have a question for you, Tim. When you read this part, were you imagining the Italian opera? <laughs> yes. Uh, everyone must go listen to Nessun Dorma. Greatest song ever. It's like so beautiful. No, I actually was not. <laughs> Because that's something like I can, I can hear that. Yeah. I feel like that whatever music is going on here is like so far beyond the music I've ever listened to. Mm. It's like yeah. that song on on steroids. <laughs> so Even were you thinking of a Gregorian chant? <sighs> Not really, and my reasoning is the same as Tim's. <laughs> Because like a Gregorian chants, you know, I can, uh, when I listen to it, I'm like, oh my gosh. But, you know, when my sister listens to it, she's like, oh, but with this song, everybody's like, oh my gosh, you know, it has to be something beyond what we can imagine and comprehend. Yeah, I agree. What, what do you think is the relationship between what's being sung and the world, right? Is it declarative? Uh, like, is the song kind of this, let there be, let there be, or is it? more uh like okay i'm gonna try i'm gonna draw two <laughs> distinctions here so that declarative sense would be kind of causal right it's like you have the singing and then it causes afterwards or is it more like drawing like teleological right like you have the song and then the world is drawing towards what the song was does if that distinction makes sense it no no <laughs> So it's one causal and the other just they just happen simultaneously. They're, they are no, a package. No. They're both they're both causal explanations. But it's whether like whether the music is like ordering something to be, or whether something is drawing out to be what the music wants it to be. Right. So it's um... it's it's like is the world growing because it's being commanded to grow. Or is it growing towards what the song is? 
so in an attempt to rephrase one is the music telling the world and one is the music is just singing and the world wants to be doing what the music is saying yeah like the world is responding to the music outside of the music ordering the world to respond to the music what do people think that's a very subtle distinction it is i feel like i'm inclined to the latter because i like that idea of call and response I think there's more balance to that, whereas the first one sounds oppressive. It reminds me of the witch. It's just the witch commands and declares people to be her slaves, and she is the figure of oppression. I don't know. I think I might disagree because um, there's this there's this section when they're talking about the stars, um, and C.S. Lewis wrote that. Uh, like the second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing, blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One point there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellation, con- and planets brighter and bigger than any in our world. And I think that's very much this idea of like all in this moment um and maybe i'm interpreting the distinction weirdly because i don't think i totally understand but the latter one seems like it's growing towards what the song is calling it to be versus the first one is like the song is declaring its existence and so it becomes and from my interpretation of the reading the first one because they come so suddenly it doesn't seem like they're growing it seems like they are declared into existence then do we think both exist? Because in the beginning, we have the moment of just pure creation. Things are declared into existence, but later on, things do begin to grow. Right. You have the slow creeping up of the sunrise. You have the grass that kind of spreads out in a wave from Aslan. You have the trees that start out as like little twigs, and then all of a sudden, they're full trees. You have the animals that kind of... The animals are a special case. They seem to exhibit both. Right, because the animals don't start off small and then become big. They kind of like rise up from the ground. Yeah. Which you have both the creation, right? They're they're pre existing, but then also the, the growth rising. Ooh. Oh. What was that, Grace Alita? Created out of dust. Ooh. <laughs> There's like a paraphrasing of that later on, right? Because from from these beasts you came to this beast, you can return. But that's later. That's later. We will we will talk about that. I found that really fascinating. But yeah, there does seem to be almost both. But Faven, what do you think? I really cannot make up my mind on this, on this on this one. I'll have to return to you on that. At the at the end of the day, I'm I'm just asking: Do we have some sort of Aristotelian theological worldview, or do we have like a Newtonian causal worldview? So, yeah, not a big deal. Definitely the former. <laughs> oh, this was the other question I had. Um, why do you think we see interspersed within this creation uh, the scenes with Polly and Diggory and the witch and Uncle Andrew and the horse and the cabbie? Like, why not just have this picture of the beauty of the creation or and then afterwards have kind of the story of what they're doing Right. Why, like, why do we see these two scenes interspersed and, and what effect does that have? I mean, besides like providing a contrast. If it does provide a contrast, like what, what do you draw from that contrast? 
I mean, it's like this, this, this pure, uh, like undefiled creation versus, especially with the witch, like this, this evil, this old evil. It's like, what could become? Yeah, I do think um, by interspersing the scenes, we can observe how all the characters react differently. And from their different reactions, I think we can glean their characters. And this actually happens the moment they stepped into nothing. Um, the witch panics and the witch says, this is my doom. And Uncle Andrew is also, oh, someone give me some alcohol. I, I'm going to die. But we see that the cabbie's really calm and the cabbie says, if you led a decent life, then there's nothing to worry about. Everyone's going to die at some point. Um, and I think there are different approaches might indicate, it, def it definitely indicates something about their world worldview and their character. And the cabbie throughout this con is like, oh, this is beautiful. We should listen. We should respect it. But the witch does not hold the, that same view. Poor Cabby, like he didn't know what he was getting yeah, into. He just got like sucked in. I must say, he handles it really well, though. Yeah. I love the Cabby. Like, he's like, all right, there's nothing better to do here, so let's just sing a hymn. And then he mm -hmm. picks like this really joyous Thanksgiving hymn that's like doesn't fit the setting at all, but it's like that's great. I like him. He's a it's very wholesome, you know. Uh, and you know, your question to makes me think about like what is. Because, like, the contrast would be this, like you said, that there's a pure, undefiled place. And now, when you contrast it to the group of these outsiders, like, now you you, you think up of ways this can go wrong, right? Uh, and I guess, and we, you know, we have the evil queen there, too. And so, what does this say about evil when, when it has, because the queen got into this place you know through human effort and so like what are the implications of that of of bringing evil into something good um through human decisions and human doings and efforts like what does that say about human partnership with evil and um and then we see that it's not a complete like firm kind of well, it was never a partnership. They hated each other. But, you know, like the humans are the redeemable ones here, right? They can go to Aslan. He, you know, he, and so they, they, they still see beauty in this place, whereas she's utterly disgusted. Um, but nevertheless, she was brought here because of them. She didn't come here alone. That's a really good question, actually. I don't know if I have an answer to that. Because on the one hand, right, it's like, yes, there is accountability that Polly and Diggory have but then there's also the accountability that Uncle Andrew has for scheming up the whole mm -hmm. magic thing and, and sending his his nephew with her his weird neighborhood next girl. door neighborhood friend <laughs> yeah. uh, into this world with trickery it's clear at least that the story is not as straightforward as the the account we get in Genesis 3 um, of the fall of man with Adam and Eve. So I don't know. I didn't think about that. But it's an interesting question. I feel like on face value, it seems a little bleak. It's just humans are sinful. We cannot escape evil. But 
I I think dun, that dun, with dun. with um the children and the cabbie, it's just their redeemable qualities and their their still beauty and good things. Yeah, definitely still good things. Two things here at the end. Uh, we see Aslan going around and giving a nice nose bump to all these pairs of animals. Yeah. And then they change. They go through like a physical change. And then there's a breathing out and then a flash of fire. And then Aslan speaks. So pick out this scene for me. Just like analyze it. I love this scene. It's very, very rich. So he chooses certain animals and they follow him and the others kind of just the other, the ones he didn't touch wander away. I feel like there's a page Calvinists would love to read. I know I do. When I read this, it was just like, is, is this some commentary on election? And um, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just jumping ahead of myself, but that's immediately what I'm like. Why did he choose certain animals and not the others? Like, I did have the exact same question, but um, I think it is reminiscent of Genesis and creation. Uh, so in Genesis, God creates Adam in His own image, and He's supposed to be the steward of everyone else. And I think it's the same thing here. We have these pairs of um animals. They come together. They shrink to around the same size, and I would imagine around the same size as Aslan. And they stand up. They walk like they walk like Aslan. Uh, so it, it, they seem to be created into to resemble Aslan's image, and they begin talking and speaking Aslan's language, and uh, Aslan directs them to, I believe, take care of the world, just like God directed mm-hmm. Adam. I feel like it's really complicated. I feel like there's a, a crashing together of creation, like the first creation, as well as like the new covenant we get in the New Testament with Christ. Because the f- scene we actually see first, and the one I just explained, seems a lot more to me like the life and work of Christ, and then Pentecost, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with the the breath, right? Breathing out on the animals, and then the, the flash of fire, um, like the tongues of fire that appear in the upper room. And that's before right because that's the very end of chapter 9 and then at the beginning of chapter 10 then we get kind of the commission that god gives to adam and eve right like the this world is yours to care over right you you know the stewardship and so i thought i i found that it's fascinating that you seem to have the new covenantal relationship before the original uh commission did anyone else read the line about aslan you know explains what he's done to these animals and did you read us then in that right like out of them you were taken and into them you can return Mm. right like how do we fit ourselves in there i think tina you touched on this earlier right yeah i can't quote the original verse but it's like from dusty or made into dust. dust you shall return yeah but uh, okay i like that i like that 
I feel like we need to go a layer deeper though. Right. Because this seems like not a sort of death versus life distinction. While there is a level to it that is death versus life, but like the quality of life or the, you know, like what you are when you're alive, your, your essence, you're either a talking beast or a dumb beast. I feel like there's a distinction between being being like Aslan versus not, or there's a I associate this with a distinction between good and bad. I think Aslan gives them the power of speech, and that is something that was originally unique to him. He was the only talking beast, but now he's created more. So in this sense, they're they're like given. A part of Aslan and he also says I will always be here with you I don't know where that quote is but he says now you have me now you have this world and do with it what you can to govern govern Narnia I suppose but I suppose if, if they're strained from their responsibility then they're going to lose that power and they're going to lose the part of Aslan that's what's within them I hmm, I found that line to be very complicated when I read it because, you know, the dust one you can understand. You know, we are made from dust and we will return to dust. But with this, um, you know, you were this dumb animal and now you've been transfigured to this, you know, beautiful, wondrous being. But you can return to your original being. And it's just like, how, how does that happen? Like, is it when you forsake Aslan? Like, how, how does how is that taken away from you? Like, how do you? go back to what you were here that was what i was thinking just if you forsake aslan it seems like a sort of punishment that would be dealt aslan will just turn you back into a dumb beast and um to further characterize what it means to be a talking beast just the last line of chapter nine aslan says narnia 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 awake love think speak be walking trees be talking beasts be divine waters so i think as talking beasts they they'll just need a they just have the ability to love, to think, to speak. And um, my interpretation is that yeah, the, these are supposed to be tools used to love for compassion for good. Mm. And if they don't do that, then they will no longer be qualified to be talking beasts. So is that something then Aslan can take away or they're just organically kind of like reverting to their old selves by not, I guess, like pursuing the good. They're becoming less less good themselves because they're not aligned with this. They be, they like they. I know they're animals, but like dehumanization. Um, I was like deanimalization, <laughs> de <De-animal- laughs> uh, talking animalization. Yeah. Um, I think it will have to be taken away. And it's not just organic because, I mean, in the line to Witch in the Wardrobe, we see evil talking animals. Yeah. But then in Prince Caspian, we see a mix. Even in Lion in the Wardrobe, we see a mix. Wait, a mix of? Of good and evil creatures. Mm-hmm. Oh, talking, yeah. Yeah, yeah creatures. that's what oh, I'm no, no. saying. Oh, sorry. I'm saying that in, in Prince Caspian, we see animals who have gone silent. Oh, yes. Yeah. That are oh, evil. Yeah. The, who are good. Oh, arguably good. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time to to like whip out Prince Caspian right now. 
you know this reminds me of cartoons where some animals talk but other animals are just regular animals like arthur <laughs> oh, that's but then they have true. pets <laughs> it is it's very fascinating i feel like we could talk about this forever and i i don't think we have enough time to really get too deep into chapter 10 um but we're only doing two chapters next week so we can throw it on to that week i thought it was also interesting this is the naming the naming of narnia and to contrast that then with the the nothing right like it it is nameless and then now you have this creation that exists and there is a naming of that i also had another question why in the world does the iron bar from the lamppost turn into another lamppost even the non-living becomes living yeah part of it definitely just illustrates how powerful the magic of creation is is if you're if you're there if you experience that song then the lamppost can grow too fascinating well i think we should leave it there for this week uh and then we'll pick up with chapter 10 11 and 12 next week yeah, there's just so much to cover. <laughs> yeah. Chapters eight and nine. It's crazy. Are, there's so much more we could have talked about. They're like the the central part of the book, I feel like. Um, so much packed in there. Very beautiful chapters. I, and I, I think it's much better to read when you know you're going to talk about it because it forces you to like critically think yeah. about what you're reading. Yeah, you can't just race through it the same way, which right. is nice. It's a short book, though, so it's not like it takes much much longer. Well, does uh, someone want to wrap us up? Grace and Lita? Oh, well, I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. Um, you can, If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, opinions, concerns, uh, you can reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook at The Good Fight Pod, mm-hmm. or you can send us a lovely, lovely email, which, honestly, we enjoy more at witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com. And we look forward to talking with you next week. Bye. Ciao. Bye.